I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detlef, and I am your Bible intro to Bible instructor. <laughs> and I'm Matt Bernico. I'm the guy teaching you how to pick up chicks with the Bible. Just kidding. <laughs> nice. I would never do that. That's what a terrible. I know. That's my, cl- <laughs> that's my class. I don't want to teach it, but they're making me. Right, right, right. Um... Yeah, what a what a wild syllabus that must be. I don't want to ask you about it. Um, nope, please I mean, don't. I do, but off air. Um, yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, so by the time you're hearing this episode, it's International Workers' Day. It's not today, but we're ready. We're anticipating it. Um, not today when we're recording it. That is. Uh, how Breaking out my celebrate? International Workers' Day advent calendar. <laughs> That's right. How we'll celebrate? Who could say? I'm gonna tune into a live stream <laughs> of people that would be here in Toronto, I guess, um, and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, <laughs> That's I, cool. I, yeah. Yep. It's the United May Day. It's. Uh, I'm actually pretty bummed. I think like I don't know. Coronavirus is tough. Uh, it's tough to not be able to to demonstrate and all that kind of thing. But United Meth- uh, United. <laughs> I almost said United Methodist Day. Um, <laughs> united may day is uh one of my favorite days of the year in toronto because it is such a like really interesting tableau of like the state of the left for better and for worse um and i like to be part of it uh and this year i guess i'll have to watch it on my tv screen um are you doing anything for may day matt no i don't think so i'm gonna be tweeting angrily um right about things uh, like i usually do uh cpusa is having a mayday dance party i don't know what that means and i'm probably not gonna do it but i just want to say it is happening (laughs) (laughs) great yeah 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 so it's cool um what you know what you should um you all you fellow travelers out there send us a a letter not a real one but like a a digital oh an email uh that tells us how you're gonna celebrate mayday and what you're doing we'd love to hear from you we don't yeah, get yeah. enough user feedback, and we need more of it. So just tell us, just tell us what's going on. Strike up a conversation. We have been getting some. Uh, we always get like a slow trickle of uh, very, very kind and thoughtful people reaching out and um, saying what they think and telling us what they uh, what what's catching them and what's not in the podcast. And we do appreciate it. Um, so you could be one of those people too. Some people uh, say they they hate Reddit goofs. Some people say <laughs> they love Reddit goofs. Man, it's tough. <laughs> we can't win. 
It's tough to sort out, isn't it? Um, well, uh, if you... Okay, we're going to come back to what we're actually talking about, but this is actually maybe a good moment to say if you miss the Reddit group, the Reddit goofs, you can still find them, but you have to pay at least a dollar for them <laughs> to uh, listen to them on our Patreon. We've moved them there with uh, some current events stuff that we're talking about on a, a secret lock-in podcast, as we call it. Um, so you can find that at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Uh, all right, that's probably enough self-promotion. Yes. Um, back to May Day. Uh, okay, May Day, if you don't know, uh, May 1st is the day that people on the left historically celebrate workers' power. Um, you might know about Labor Day, but that was created as a competitor to May Day, which is the real workers' holiday. Um, that's right. It all Labor goes Day back sucks, to I hate com- it. I know, it's a bad one. Um, it's a bad one where it, it's basically a holiday for grilling, and that's not what you want. Um, <laughs> no. May Day goes back to the commemoration of the Haymarket Affair or the Haymarket Riot or Rebellion or whatever you want to say in Chicago in 1886. Um, It started off as a demonstration for an eight-hour workday, but it all went to hell pretty quick when somebody threw a bomb. Um, Nobody really knows who did it. The cops infamously killed a ton of people in response to that bomb, so some people suggest that the the cops threw the bomb in order to create a pretext for violence, so the people say something else uh i don't know you can figure that out uh importantly though afterward basically without any real evidence uh the state hanged four people george engel adolf fisher albert parsons and august spees and ever since then communists anarchists and socialists of all kinds have celebrated workers on may 1st so in the past we've talked about how some christians of this time were involved in the haymarket affair and radical politics in the gilded age there's more than you might think Um, If you're interested in that, you can go back and look for our episodes with Heath Carter, a really great historian um, in particular, who's helped us think about that. Uh, But this time, we're going to do a deep dive on a Christian who was on the other side of things, the bad side of things, Dwight Lyman Moody. If you've never heard of Dwight Moody, you're lucky. (laughs) If you've never heard of the (laughs) Moody Bible Institute, you're also lucky. Um, You can, uh, but you can think of him as like an evangelical saint or like a past pope of evangelicalism he was a big deal (laughs) um so dwight moody was an evangelical before there were evangelicals before during when they were fighting whether they should be called evangelicals or fundamentalists or whatever is going on with christianity um but interestingly enough the moody bible suit shares a pretty weird and secret history with the Haymarket affair. You would you <laughs> never like would guess. the history channel uh, episode of the cast. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly what we're doing. Um <laughs> so um we thought we should take a look at that history as well as some of Moody's ideas surrounding uh, evangelism and the poor and think about how that origin is still with us in evangelicalism today. Um, yeah, I mean, overall, like figuring out what it means to be a Christian on the left means figuring out the ways that Christianity and capitalism have worked together to create really oppressive and reactionary types of politics. And uh, there's no better example than Dwight L. Moody. I think that's right. Um, I think that it's OK. You might ask yourself, hey, it's the di- it's the day, the high holy day of the left. Uh, why are you talking about such a huge nerd like D.L. Moody? Um, and the reason is, uh, like Matt said, it's important if you're a Christian on the left to figure out how we're complicit. Um, but also, uh, it is a fascinating kind of, um, event that, that spurs on a, a kind of tradition of Christianity being tied to capitalism and encourages us to ask some critical questions. Uh, so it's a good excuse to do that. 
Um, if you don't know who Moody is, we'll, we'll get to who he really was. But I think one way into this conversation is to talk about the myth around Moody. So maybe you've never heard of Dwight L. Moody. Like Matt said, if that's the case, then you're very lucky. But if you spend any time in evangelical circles for too long, there's a handful of people that you'll hear about at some point. Um, just maybe some examples. Maybe these are like extremely Michigan examples. I don't really know. But like <laughs> someone might at some point get you a devotional by Charles Spurgeon. Uh, to give you one example. Or if you say that you like philosophy, then someone will ask you for sure about C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. Uh, Moody, though, will definitely come up as soon as somebody ta- starts talking about evangelism. Um, he's taken on a kind of mythical status as like a revivalist. He's maybe like a 19th century Billy Graham. Um, and one good example of this hagiography comes out in Christianity Today, the evangelical uh, magazine. So it ends like this. I'll just read this uh, paragraph, which is a bit long, but I think it gives you a window into just the the figure of Moody. Um, so here goes. <clears throat> he used every opportunity to preach. Through his revival work, he saw the need for an army of Bible-trained lay people to continue the work of inner-city evangelism. Quote, if this world is going to be reached, he said, I'm convinced that it must be done by men and women of average talent. After all, there are comparatively few people in this world who have great talents. Okay. Uh, In 1880, Moody invited adults and college-age youth to the first of many summer Bible conferences at his home in Northfield. These conferences helped nurture dispensationalism and fundamentalism, both of which were just emerging. At one conference, the student volunteer movement was founded by 11 collegians who pledged to work in foreign missions after their college education. Uh, A horrible tradition that unfortunately still exists. Um, Finally, in 1886, Moody started the Bible Work Institute of the Chicago Evangelization Society. Uh, (laughs) Not a great name. What what a name. Uh, Renamed Moody Bible Institute shortly before his death, uh, which was one of the first in the Bible school movement. From this work, he launched yet another work, the Cole Portage Association, later Moody Press. Again, not not a great namer. That's not what he's known for. Um, <laughs> an organization using horse-drawn gospel wagons from which students sold low-cost religious books and tracts throughout the nation. Despite a tireless schedule, he preached six sermons a day just a month before he died. He loved to spend time with his children and grandchildren at their Northfield, Massachusetts farm where he died. So that gives you kind of an example of just like the place that Moody occupies in the imagination of evangelicals, I think. You know, he's like a, a, a person of conviction who uh, cares about the average person figuring out how to be an evangelist. Uh, he's preaching all the time. You can't stop him. He won't stop himself. Uh, even till a month before he died, he's preaching six times a day. Um, he's got the gospel wagon. He's starting schools. He's starting presses. He's nurturing fundamentalism and dispensationalism. Uh, and he comes out looking like this, um, you know, this person who's totally uh kind of sold out for like spreading the good word or something like that um so it 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 helps to maybe get an idea of the myth of moody to understand why uh connecting him to the haymarket affair as we're about to do is also extremely wild (laughs) yeah man he's such a he has a wild character i think i first got interested in moody when i was doing some research on christian education a while back um, the Christian education in the United States is, I mean, evangelical Christian education. I mean, uh, Catholic education is a whole nother gang. But um, yeah, I mean, like, you, you can't really tell that story without Dwight L. Moody and the Moody Bible Institute. It's such a weird place with a weird theology and sort of ideology behind it. 
it's hard to really describe. <laughs> the whole <laughs> thing is so is so bizarre. Like, I mean, you mentioned just a minute ago, Dean, dispensationalism, and that bit is so important to the way that the Moody Bible Institute works. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, I mean, you know, you think of, okay, I mean, it's it's no secret that the listenership to our, our uh, podcast are basically all people who went to evangelical schools namely in Michigan, but, um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's the Moody Bible Institute is not right now and was never a school like, you know, um, Cornerstone or, uh, you know, uh, any other like Calvin or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was a place that was specifically there to teach you how to do the Christian work. And what that means is evangelism really particularly. And like, you didn't go there for a course of study, really. Like you didn't get a degree. Like you were just there until you weren't there anymore because like you never knew when the rapture would come. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So it's not like you would just like, you know, it's not like, well, no, I have my bachelor's degree in in evangelism. (laughs) It's like, you were just there until you weren't there anymore. It's like, it's this wild, the mood balance suit is wild. Like on the one hand, it is this kind of like interesting sort of democratic experiment in Christian education. On the other hand, it's bad. So there's that. Um, so anyways, we have this, like, these myths about about Dwight Moody and, like, what he's about and, like, you, you know, his whole thing, right? But who's the real Moody? This is the, this mm-hmm. is the History Channel mm-hmm. <laughs> version mm-hmm. again. So, like, he's a hard person to explain for a lot of reasons. He's invested... Wait, wait, wait. Just to, sorry, just to set up the History Channel aesthetic here, if everybody could just, like, close your eyes for a minute. Imagine, like, uh, um, like Google on your phone really quickly uh, a picture of Dwight L. Moody, and then just imagine it's, like, slightly animated. Uh, <laughs> and then, like, close your eyes and keep that image in your brain as Matt um, talks just for the next minute or two. <laughs> That's right. So he was really successful evangelical force throughout the United States in the late 19th century. He is really well known for, like I said, the Moody Bible Institute, which is just like this huge evangelical training grounds for mission work and evangelism. Um, but uh, he's really in- integral to like the story of Chicago during this time and the Haymarket riots and politics and evangelicalism writ large. Um, so yeah, he is an active figure in Chicago around the same time as the Haymarket affair um, the 1880s, you know, that whole, that whole time, um, you know, he was there before that he was there after that, all this kind of stuff. We can't get way too, we can't get into the weeds too much, but I'm going to try to give a short version of the story. (laughs) Um, so yeah, like I said, he'd end up benefiting the Haymarket affair in some interesting ways. Um, but before the Moody Bible Institute, um, he was just like this well-known evangelist revival figure, like a, yeah, like a 19th century Billy Graham is probably right. Moody's main appeal, um, was to like, upper and middle class types people like that's the people who are coming out to his revival meetings um not mm-hmm. the poor and working class um upper class people middle class people um moody was obviously okay with this because it provided like a big base of donors to his cause which is nice to have um <laughs> <laughs> the organ grinder uh, needs those uh, deep pockets that's right that's exactly right um but in that, he recognized that the working class were the folks that who, who needed like the gospel message, especially um, there's there's this like really I mean, we'll talk about this more towards the end of the episode. But there's this really yucky, like anti working class, like ideology going on here. Um, you know, those are the people who are uneducated, who who, you know, are brutish and nasty and they need someone to tell them how to live an upright life. And that's what um that's what Dwight Moody thought he could do. And that's like also there's like a, you know, a real conservatism in that type of thinking. Like, you know, you just have to teach poor people to live the right way. And if you do that, then they will be, you know, less gross to you or something. And that sort of like 
that element of his uh, preaching was like really appealing to the upper class folks. And that's why so many of them were very on board. Right. Cause it, it was a, it was a type of um, it was a type of sort of theological thinking and ideology that, um, that, that said like rich people, you're doing everything right. And poor people, you can be like rich people if you just kind of follow these rules. Yeah. I mean, it's a real, you can already see the, the ways that capitalism habituates you into thinking about yourself and other people, right? Like, um, there's a kind of Christian paternalism here. Like you were saying Matt. like, uh, poor people are poor because they're brutish or there's something wrong with them. And if only they could understand maybe the, you know, the saving light of the gospel or something they could clean up and get a job and, and be a good business person or something like that, which is uh, the, in, in some ways the story of D.L. Moody, right? Um, at least that's how he kind of narrated his own story to himself, it seems. Um, and I think that is important, too, because uh, first of all, it shows you how capitalism trains you to think about people who are dispossessed by the economy, right? Like uh, you read that as their fault. Um, But it also shows that Christians have found like Christian reasons to feel that way for a very, very long time. So it's a a tough, uh, a tough like ideological nut to crack. Yeah, absolutely. It is very tough. And it's definitely one that like um, Dwight Moody and the rest of the sort of Chicago bourgeoisie were not self-reflective enough to understand. (laughs) Um. Yeah, I mean, so so Moody's thing is that he wants to bring the good news to the working class. But unfortunately for Moody, the working class weren't super interested in that. <laughs> I mean, some of them, of course, were. Um, but he had a hard time getting working people to come to his revivals. There's a um, so uh, to kind of prepare for some of this. I did some research in Timothy Glegg's book called Guaranteed Pure, which is a book about uh, D.L. Moody. Um, and uh, he notes that sometimes like um, you know, like women and mothers would come to, you know, working class families would come, but they could never really get the men to come, which is, you know, um, <laughs> I don't know. It seems like a, a a trope that plays out all too often in Christianity. But anyways, that's what you get. Um, Glegg, uh, Timothy Glegg, again, the historian that I'm referencing here and will reference throughout the rest of this episode. Um, he does a really good job kind of explaining um, the way that Moody's gospel is framed around a certain type of bourgeois individualism. It glorified businessmen, disparaged working class people. That's the whole thing. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And there's this whole idea of like Christian work in Moody's thing and uh, in, in Moody's like theology and evangelistic ideology. There's probably a better word for that. And I can't think of it, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just keep saying ideology. Uh, yeah. uh, missiology. God, I don't know, man. Um, it doesn't matter. But it's uh, all there. Yeah. <laughs> So anyways, um, this is uh, this is how Timothy Glegg kind of frames Moody as a person that kind of helps give you a, an understanding of like what's going on here. So Moody hailing from a working class background and with the verbal infelicities to prove it, he could speak to these men, the working class folks in their own dialect. Yet he hobnobbed with successful businessmen without any apparent resentment. He parroted their economic views and glib decorations declarations proclaiming that he could not see how a man can follow Christ and not be successful and that he believed hard work inevitably brought self-sufficiency. Wouldn't it be nice if that were the case? (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, that's, that's Dwight Moody in a nutshell, right? Um, If you just do Christian stuff good enough, if you do the Christian work and you kind of, um, (laughs) if you do the Christian work and you're also like a complete idiot about economics and we'll just say whatever rich people agree with, you'll be really (laughs) successful. Yeah, that's true. That is probably true. Um, Right. 
here's this is another funny story that Gleg brings up to kind of demonstrate the tension between the you know like holier than thou businessmen of Dwight Moody's class and also working people. This is just like I don't know, kind of unrelated, but I think it's worth talking about because it's funny. Um, so when business leaders persuaded Mayor Joseph Metal, who was the mayor of Chicago at the time, to enforce Sunday saloon closing, so closing the bars on Sundays, the working classes united across ideological and ethnic lines to elect a leftist people's party for city government <laughs> in 1873. It didn't last very but. long, but like, <laughs> I think I like I like that little blurb of a story because it's like, um, here are these rich people, and they're going to tell you they're going to tell you poor people how you, you working class people how to live a good life, and <laughs> part of that is not going to not drinking on Sundays, and <laughs> working class people were so mad that they started. Their own political party <laughs> <laughs> yeah i love that um one weird thing though about moody and especially this feeds into evangelicalism in general is that at least the way that i've been um shaped or was shaped to see him when i was an evangelical is that he was the type of guy who uh you know he was like willing to to get down and dirty with like the working class and even uh be a little grimy himself uh wink wink and uh <laughs> the the idea being like there's a story even in that christianity today um kind of hagiography where uh the details are not immediately present to me but like basically they some people the city or whatever like somebody said they were gonna stop um some stuff from happening at like these fairgrounds or whatever and moody was like no no like the like a bunch of christians were upset that they were going to have these events and moody was like no we've got to go there because like that's the mission field mm-hmm. and uh that is like such a wild evangelical thing to think right like um <laughs> it's it, it's sort of like it, it gives moody and other evangelicals this air of like uh i don't know being like interesting or radical or something like that because they're willing to put up with like the moral infidelities of uh, the lost um if it means that they could be saved uh which is just like this strange oscillation between relevance and holiness that you always get in evangelicalism yeah it's a really good note it's kind of like leninism you know you just go where the people are (laughs) yeah that's right that's right (laughs) (laughs) well unlike leninism (laughs) dwight moody (laughs) here's uh here's another quote from gleg's book about um his way to think about christianity um so gleg writes for moody the church like a business had no intrinsic value absent its results Thus, its primary purpose was to coordinate support and encourage its members towards Christian work. So I've mentioned this this phrase, Christian work, a few times, and let me just tell you what it means now. Um, (laughs) So Christian work for Moody means like converting people and evangelizing to them to this specific type of Christianity, mm-hmm. right? Not, not the, uh, not the social gospel that's kind of happening at the same time. And that will come after this, but uh, a type of really like socially conservative um, and capitalist friendly gospel. Um, yeah. So the Christian work here it ends up getting taken on by a lot of Dwight Moody's sort of associates. Most notably, this is kind of an interesting story by this woman named Emma Dreyer. Um, Dreyer is like, um, yeah, she's a person who's like really down with Moody's whole thing. Um, and she basically kind of like works with him to become what Dwight Moody would call a Bible reader. And uh, <laughs> Bible reading was like a job doing the Christian work. There's so many like stupid words with this. But basically, <laughs> her whole job would be to um, go to poor neighborhoods, um, provide some charity where it was needed, um, you know, whatever that might mean. And then like basically read the Bible to people and make sure they know what the Bible says. <laughs> and that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Christian work was that type of evangelism, sort of just dropping into neighborhoods that you don't belong in and um, and 
reading the Bible to people. I mean, like it doesn't get really any more, more parental than that, but that type yeah. of Christian work ends up being a big deal for Moody later. So, you know, like when he's talking about, yeah, getting, getting grimy with these working class folks, like that's what he means. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> like, right. Right. Not uh, not recognizing their intrinsic worth or like trying to free right. them from the oppression of capitalism or whatever else is going on. Right. But to like read the Bible to them, which is some some dumb stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's so fascinating how these kinds of patterns also end up being baked into evangelicalism later. Right. Like, uh, I, I mean, the thing I immediately think of is like missions. Uh, where <laughs> I don't know how many times I've like talked to a conservative Christian who's like, um, yeah, like our, our youth group is going to go um, build some wells in like Guatemala and we're really excited about it. Um, and you know what? Like the most important thing is like we're there to build wells, but like we're also there to share the word. <laughs> and uh like that's that's really why we're there and so like you can only imagine you know a bunch of like stupid white americans like going to guatemala and like telling all these uh peasant indigenous catholics what the bible says while they like dig them wells right like it's this bizarre kind of contradiction um but yeah like that's that's how evangelicalism kind of um teaches you to think and it's helpful to see moody as uh a a first foray into all that right like he's innovating these kinds of things in many respects uh not by himself but um in an outsized kind of way at least to the point that he becomes uh remembered in the pantheon of evangelical uh historical memory which is important because evangelicals aren't exactly like historically minded by and large so um yeah anyway just interesting to kind of note all these weird um, how these weird like habits uh, continue, you know, a hundred years later or so. That reminds me of a story that I probably shouldn't tell, but I'm going to tell anyways. Um, a, <laughs> long, <laughs> a long time ago, um, when I when I myself, like D.L. Moody, was uh, a part of the Christian education apparatus, I was at this meeting that was, uh, it was like an outside group trying to pitch a semester abroad to some students. And mm-hmm. a semester abroad, um, I, it's fine. Um, but it was like through a like a Christian program and um, they, they go to specifically uh, specifically countries in uh, the Caribbean and Latin America. And this one um, colleague of mine, <laughs> I'm so bitter about this. Never mind. But um, <laughs> basically they're like, hey, do you why don't you guys take students to Haiti? Because like they really need to hear the good word. And the guy that was visiting was like, well, what do you mean? Well, because of like the witchcraft there and the guy, they're just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> but it's like, you know, it's that same that same vibe from Moody still exists, right? You're not going yeah. to do social like to work to give people relief in their social lives. You're going to give them spiritual relief. You're trying to save them right. from the spiritual ills of the world. And that sucks so much ass. I hate it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I think the craziest thing of this whole piece in Moody, though, is uh, all right. So Moody is remembered as a guy who is training people to go, you know, read the Bible to poor people, like work with the working class. Um, but uh, Matt, one thing that you were telling me before we got on this call that I'd like you to talk more about is uh, how, like, actually Moody did a very bad job of it. <laughs> I think that's my favorite part of this whole story. Um, could you maybe walk me through that a little bit again? <laughs> yeah. He, I mean, you know, he had these, he, he tried to, he had Bible readers. He had people going to do the Christian work. He was doing the Christian work, but like the working class didn't care. I don't know. It wasn't, you know, I mean, like, I don't want to paint too broad strokes, right? Like, of course this appealed to some people and that's fine. But like, by and large, it did not convert the working class to his specific brand of Christianity. 
Um, it didn't it didn't do the things that he wanted it to do. Um, it kept on appealing to middle class and upper class people. That's, I think, um, <laughs> the really important part of the story is that it, he was trying to you know reach these these gross poor people so much, but uh, it didn't actually end up panning out. And um, I think the most illustrative example of this <laughs> maybe is the way that his life and work coincide with the Haymarket Affair. Um, so we're finally getting to this part, the interesting part, the reason we're tuning in. <laughs> we're really taking these the history channel tactics, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, to the next level. We're now that you're you've you've sat through the boring history and a weird story from me. Now we're going to tell you what you're really here for. <laughs> now it's the ancient aliens moment. <laughs> That's right. Uh, me with big hair, deal moodly. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, okay. This entire time Moody's in Chicago, he like, he's building this, you know, big network of bourgeois Christians and like, they're basically bankrolling his work. Um, all kinds of them. If you are familiar with Chicago, I mean, go look at this Timothy Glegg book. It, it, all the rich people from Chicago that everything is named after are in it. Um, and they're like all giving deal moodly moody, uh, money. So um, basically he wanted them to give him money to start a school to teach people how to do Christian work. He wanted money to start the Moody Bibles too. But they were like not super on board with it right away. Um, they were really into his like revival preaching and like they wanted him to keep doing that. So they're like, okay, Moody, whatever. We'll get to that later. We'll get to your cool school later. Um, but <laughs> for now, like, what if we just gave you money to do another revival series and you can bring poor people to it and do your whole thing and that will be awesome. And Moody's like, fine. Like, it's like a real begrudging moment. <laughs> like, he doesn't really want to do this. Um, but uh, he does do it. Uh, this is how Gleg describes the whole situation. Whether concerned by denominational opposition or simply averse to the large price tag, Moody's business allies were slow to organize Moody's proposed training institute. Instead, as a consolation, they proposed that Moody hold a May revival campaign on the city's rolling south side, <laughs> cynically timed to coincide with a threatened general strike for an eight-hour workday. You can that. you can see where this is getting awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I just love like the idea of a bunch of uh, business people being like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard about that strike too. Yeah, I don't know what we're gonna do. Hey, hey, remember that pastor? Like, um, can we get him to like just try to get everybody out of the city for a minute? <laughs> do you, oh man, do you know what working like? Do you know what angry and tired workers love? Church. That's right. They're not gonna go to a strike. <laughs> they could go to a church meeting. That's awesome. They love that stuff. Yeah. Okay. So here's where it gets better. It it just keeps getting better. Um, okay, so again from Glegg's book. The first evening, Moody addressed swaths of empty seats, exhorting the sprinkling of wives and mothers present to bring the meeting, to bring to the meetings the men who were on strike. So yeah, again, like wives and mothers showed up, but the but the, uh, but the men weren't there because they were all on strike. Um, the following day, May third, a massive crowd of forty thousand protesters gathered at the gates of McCormick Factory. McCormick was uh, a person that was funding Moody. Um, so this is before the Haymarket riot. In case you're not uh, tracking, this is on May third. Uh, Haymarket, but like on... involving many of the people who would be part of the Haymarket riot. Yeah, totally. This like rolls yeah. over into it the next day. Yeah, yeah. Um, so at this protest at the McCormick Factory, the police killed four strikers and injured hundreds more. German anarchists called for a protest at Haymarket Square the next evening and distributed pamphlets uh, with a call to arms. All right. Again, it's just the mounting tension of this story is so great. It's just like <laughs> Moody is just like just trying to do this thing, and at the same time, like in the background, like people just like screaming. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so um, this is my favorite line from the entire book. No one remembers May 4th, 1886 from Moody's blistering sermon. 
which used Noah's flood to remind listeners that God will not allow sin to go unpunished. Rather, the day is noted for a bomb of unknown origin exploding in Haymarket Square. Okay, so this is where things heat up. This is, um, th- this happens. Like, no one comes to Moody's <laughs> revival meeting because they're all at this riot. Um, uh, what a terrible, but like, extremely dark comedy thing. Um, so after after the um, Haymarket riot, this is what Moody says. This is his like response. I'm not speaking disparagingly of different churches and missions now attempting to reach this class, he later told reporters, but anyone with their eyes open can't fail to see that the masses are not reached. One of two things is absolutely certain. Either these people are to be evangelized to, or the leaven of communism and infidelity will assume such enormous proportions that it will break out in a reign of terror such as this country has never known. It don't take a prophet or the son of a prophet to see these things. You can hear the muttering of the coming convulsion even now, if you only open your ears and your eyes. Um, So this is Moody's response. Basically, he's just like, these people need to be at my church. What are they doing? They're, <laughs> they're, they're falling prey to communism. Um, and then uh, it, it really interestingly too, though, because like, you know, Haymarket is not um, the Haymarket riot is not like an individualized event, right? Like there are tons of things le- leading up to it, all kinds of labor strikes beforehand, all kinds of mm-hmm. radicalization beforehand. Um, and Glegg says uh, Moody had made nearly identical comments back in March, but it was only Haymarket that opened the eyes and ears and wallets. So um, after Haymarket and Moody says these sort of like scathing, the scathing critique of the, the anarchists and communists who um, made such a big stink of things. Um, that is how Moody got all of his rich benefactors to finally fund the Moody Bible Institute. That's like the thing that did it. Um, <laughs> it's, it's that, um, that like, you know, the Haymarket riot is like this, like tipping, this tipping point in like the social order where people finally see like, there's something serious going on here. There's all these dispossessed workers. And then Moody's, Moody's the guy that's just like, well, yeah, but if they come, if they come to my church, if we find, if we can train enough people to go out and reach these people um, and, and, you know, tell them how to, to live a good Christian life, this won't be a problem anymore. Right. So the, the funny (laughs) thing about the Haymarket, right. Is that like, that's how Moody, makes enough money to open what would be the Moody Bible Institute. And that is the most buck wild story I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> it is really wild. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's so strange too. I mean, you, you mentioned, so the Haymarket affair, the Haymarket riot is a tipping point and it's a tipping point for both the right and the left, right? Mm-hmm. Like uh, the left. Um, I mean, there are big events that happen in the 19th century before and after the Haymarket uh, events, but like, it takes on an international significance so much so that it becomes a, a holiday all around the world, right? Because of the, in honor of these martyrs. Um, and at the same time, the right too starts to uh, pick up on the fact that, yeah, this is a big deal. And it's so fascinating to see Moody as a, a financial benefactor of that crisis. Um, as somebody who's like, <laughs> I don't know, like business savvy, I guess, seeing the writing on the wall, uh, starting out, you know, that now's the time to, uh, to make the pitch, uh, in the dragon's den or whatever <laughs> and be like, yeah, yeah, you, you can get all my equity, uh, just pour in right now. This is the time. It's like you're in or out. <laughs> uh, Moody's just pitching this to Mark Cuban. This is going to work. That's right. We're going to start this new school. It's going to be so good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is. It is a really good example of the ways evangelicalism is plugged into the machine of capitalism. Um, 
insofar that it, it's it's there to preserve a type of social order, right? It's a type of conservatism that's trying to keep things the same and repress the desires to um, radically alter society in a way that would benefit more people. Um, yeah, I mean, it's <laughs> from my perspective right now, it is such a weird thing to think of like as a legitimate type of Christianity. I mean, of course it is, right? <laughs> but like thinking that like, yo, yeah, Jesus, a completely, uh, you know, a conservative type of guy. No, <laughs> not at all. It's just such a bizarre, <laughs> a bizarre thought. But like it just, when, when you kind of combine, you know, that specific hermeneutic of, of, um, of reading the Bible, which is, you know, a very sort of like plain sort of fundamentalist kind of way of reading the Bible alongside of um, Christian ideology, it just like works together uh, to make this mechanism that, um, that tries to, yeah, I mean, oppress workers, right? It's complicit in that type of oppression. Yeah. There are so many strange moving parts to it also, like, um, you know, so evangelicals so often talk about how, uh, obviously, okay, there's a big political machinery around evangelicalism. So I was about to say evangelicals often talk about um, being kind of above the fray of politics. And I, I yeah. don't, you know, <laughs> okay, obviously lots of them don't. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't want to be generalized that way um, for, for obvious reasons. But um, a lot of Christians, when you talk to them, and evangelicals in particular, will say something like, you know, uh, saving souls isn't about politics. Like, you, you would save the soul of a communist and a feminist and, like, a conservative and whoever you could find who doesn't have Jesus. Like, you would just save them. Um, and it, it's sort of explained as though it, it rises above all of material and worldly conditions or something like that. Uh, but when you go back throughout history, it is so consistently on the side of and, and so consistently being produced by the literal financial interests of capitalists that it is like, it's so interesting to see that as the consummate sort of bourgeois religion, you know, that um, it's the, the politics that disavows being political, mm. um, the kind of spirituality that says that it's above the fray precisely because it, you know, it thinks that liberalism is above the fray in some kind of strange way. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just interesting to see, like we've talked in the past on this podcast about how, uh, even after, like, the Great Depression, right, that was a turning point for evangelicalism. Um, all of a sudden, these kind of uh, charity gospel preachers or whatever found themselves not on the side of the organized working class, but on the side of the business owners. Um, like, this is such a consistent um, pattern in history. Uh, you see it in Haymarket, you see it in the Great Depression, you see it again, of course, after the, the 70s, which are the a real height of uh, radicalism. Um, you know, Reagan gets elected in the 80s. Like, uh, it's fascinating to see this as a, a repeated pattern that goes over and over and over again. Yeah, the the way that evangelicalism works within capitalism, it, it functions like as an idea or as a type of propaganda that's like, so good that people don't even recognize mm -hmm. it as propaganda or like at least evangelicals don't right it's completely like you know under their radar they don't ever quite catch on to their own bullshit yeah i uh, mean i like i get it like there was a time in my life when i thought you know it well to the credit of like uh normal average evangelicals who aren't in the pocket of big business explicitly like if you think that people are going to hell unless you talk to them about jesus then like you know, it probably should consume your whole life. <laughs> it's yeah. just like too bad that if that's you really a believe that ideological. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like it's too bad that's an ideological construction or reflection of capitalism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, I guess it's just so frustrating because you know uh, what it means to live a good Christian life 
does mean you know complete compliance to capitalism but like right but but i guess like what i mean when i say it's it's propaganda that's so good that you don't even know it's propaganda i mean like you know they wouldn't even recognize that as being something political right like just right, showing up right. for work and and not complaining about you know your your student loans or your boss or whatever like that you can't <laughs> do that and be a christian or whatever but you know yeah of course um yeah Here's completely a weird segue. Like, okay, our podcast, it's known for having bad segues. I don't think it's known by other people for that. I think it's just known by us for that. <laughs> but um, I'm going to dive into that part of our brand really hard here because I need to tell right. this story. It doesn't really fit into this story particularly, but it needs to be told. Um, so I was talking a little bit earlier about the weirdness of Moody Bible Institute and like kind of how it functioned as a school. Um and um, this is a story I found when I was doing some of this research on Christian higher ed, and um, it's amazing. So it comes from this book uh, written by Adam Latz called Fundamentalist You, and it's basically a history of like these type of weird evangelical schools. Um, lots of good histories in here about Bob Jones and Liberty, um, and also Moody Bible Institute. It's a huge part of it. So um, this is a really fun story that it, at least... It's kind of on brand for our podcast. It's about Moody Bibles too. It's connected in these vague ways, and you just have to listen to it or turn the podcast off. You choose. It's not my problem. <laughs> so, anyways, um, there's this like whole section in this book about how students have broken the rules at Christian universities, and it's a joyful and amazing history. Uh, it's basically just a it's just a a chapter about how some students they would they'd rat on one another and like be like oh man that that guy had a grill in his room and then other parts are about how like these students were drinking <laughs> it's amazing anyways this is my favorite rule-breaking story um about moody bible institute um for some earnest students their behavior represented religious dissent not merely hedonistic excess the most unusual case involved student ralph parse at moody bible institute in 1934 parse admitted that he was a socialist but to the consternation of the MBI, or the Moody Bible Institute community, Parse insisted that there was no conflict between his political beliefs and the doctrinal platform of the Bible Institute. It's <laughs> a weird thing to think. <laughs> but I'm on Parse, I'm on Ralph's side here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, he's, he's pulling that evangelical uh, Thomas Haggerty move. I've been there, Ralph, and I know what you're doing, and I support you. <laughs> um, Parse's evangelical socialism put the MBI administration in a pickle. On the one hand, faculty leaders were, were concerned that harboring an openly socialist student would wreck MBI's carefully built reputation as a citadel of unyielding fundamentalism. On the other hand, teachers worried about establishing a precedent for vetting students merely on the basis of their political beliefs. In the end, the faculty voted to let Parse remain, but only with a razor-thin one-vote majority. Um, <laughs> there, there's more, there's more to the story. That's really interesting. Uh, Ralph Parse ends up leaving Moody Bible Institute before he finishes all of his classes, which I mean, honestly, good for Ralph. Um, that's what he, mm -hmm, that's what mm -hmm. he did. I don't know what happens to Ralph later in his life. Um, I like to think that he joined the communist party, um, <laughs> that, uh, you know, that's what he did. That's what I want to believe in my heart of hearts, but I love yeah. this Ralph Parse story so much. Um, it, it's such a... <laughs> It's just completely off the wall, I guess, is why I like it. But um, I think it's really funny because that is that's what happens in Christian schools sometimes. I mean, at least at yeah. least in my experience, right? Like you got these like extremely um, conservative students, and, and the school is known for being like a safe space to send your kids, right? If you're a Christian parent, but then every now and again, you have these like real wild ass kids who are like, yeah, and that's why I'm a socialist because of Jesus. <laughs> and then the school's like, yeah. what are we gonna do about this? 
<laughs> we can't yeah, kick them I out. Mean, <laughs> They're paying <laughs> our tuition. Products of that. Yeah. Um, Comrade Roth Forest, if he's your grandpa, please let us know. We will 100% send you some stickers. For I, want, sure. I need to That's know. That's all we can do. I need to know everything about Ralph. Yeah, got to know everything about Ralph. We have tried to Google him. It's not uh, not a lot of leads. So no. if you know Ralph Forrest personally, um, put us in touch. Uh, <clears throat> just to uh, continue this bad transition, I'll uh, yank us back really quick uh, to pull out one more anecdote that ties uh, Moody to Haymarket. Um, so there are a number of people involved in, in the Haymarket affair as kind of high-profile people or like people who went on trial. Um, and were arrested after and everything else. Uh, one of them who went on trial and didn't wasn't killed uh, was a guy named Samuel Fielden. Uh, Fielden had been a Methodist pastor for a really long time and also a socialist at the same time that he was a pastor. But like over time, he uh, gave up his faith and um, nevertheless kind of obviously like maintained some kind of weird interest in like how Christianity was developing. I mean, it's pretty common of that time, I guess. Uh, but there's a really, really fascinating story that Fielden tells in his autobiography about uh, meeting D.L. Moody. Um, and I'll read it really quickly. Oh, I should add. Okay, so Fielden was one of the people put on trial. He was also um, the person speaking when the bomb went off in Haymarket. So like, you know, right there ground zero uh anyway so this is obviously before the haymarket affair but he has a really funny story that fielden tells so he says uh after he became what he describes as a free thinker he says i visited farwell hall where i heard the since world-renowned dwight l moody on reaching home i indicted a letter to mr moody and in a few days i received an answer in which he informed me that he would like to see me on the following sunday evening i went again to farwell hall and heard mr moody refer to the letter he had received during the week after the service was over, and as Mr. Moody was going down below to gather in the spiritually wounded, I tapped him on the shoulder and informed him that I was the guilty wretch that had written the letter to him. He tried to get me to go downstairs with him, but I declined, and he informed me that he would talk with me at the Illinois Street Mission the next night. Well, I went there, and soon after my arrival, an honest-looking fellow got upon the floor and during his remarks referred to the rascality of the methods of business, concluding by expressing the opinion that no businessman could be a Christian. A young stripling, evidently of the genus Counterjumper, then rose to his feet and informed the audience that he was a Christian and a businessman, and went on to dilate upon the virtues of businessmen and their piety until I was thoroughly convinced that all a man needed to do in this world in order to make his calling and election sure in the next was to sell for a dollar what only cost 15 cents. Uh, this little speech seemed to relieve the audience greatly, which had undoubtedly been very much di uh, discomposed by the speech of the common and ordinary looking man who had preceded him at last the meeting came to a close and i moved up toward the stove and presented myself to mr moody we sat down we had quite a good good and at times animated conversation for perhaps an hour and a half when i thought that it was about time for my opponent to be convinced and when mr moody thought the same about me so that we had each moved out to meet the starlight I think Mr. Moody will remember this occurrence, and I will say that there was nothing said on either side that would or did hurt the feelings of the other. We parted at the door with the best feeling toward each other. I am only sorry to say that my opponent has persisted in following the wrong path to this day. <laughs> I'm truly sorry for him. I only wish that we both turn to the right before it is everlastingly too late. Uh, that's the end of his story. But it's such a... It's fascinating because, first of all, it really cr crystallizes everything we've been saying, right? There's this kind of, like 
class war within Christianity already, and uh, Moody is, like, seeing it in front of him, even after he does these revival meetings or whatever. Um, and uh, on the other hand, how wild is it that, like, the guy who was there when the bomb went off in Haymarket uh, was also, like, hanging out with Dwight L. Moody, trying to convince him to be an atheist and a socialist. <laughs> it's, like, a crazy time. It is a crazy time. Ugh. Imagine if he would have won and converted D.L. Moody. <laughs> would have been wild. No kidding. I know. That's I the know. alternate timeline I would like to live in. Yeah, in the parallel universe, uh, D.L. Moody is uh, one more Haymarket martyr. <laughs> uh, instead, he's just a shit. uh all right so i think we can maybe round this mayday conversation out uh talking about a little bit um about how evangelicals maybe understand the working class and the poor and thinking about how we might understand that relationship differently as christian folks um you know we've been talking a bit about evangelicals having this paternalistic relationship toward the poor and the working class um seeing them as like in need of special instruction or special help. Uh, and you see that in Moody, you see it repeated in people like Billy Graham, you see it repeated in, you know, Jerry Falwell or Franklin Graham today or whoever you might kind of pick, uh, pick your evangelical. Um, but I think it's really important to remember that like, there are Christian reasons for people to cozy up to business. And there are like Christian reasons that people have found to oppose that very kind of uh, association and like figuring out how to intervene in that sort of fundamental contradiction is uh, the challenge of the Christian left today. Like trying to sort out where is the class struggle and how can Christians push it in one direction over, over the other, understanding all that historical weirdness. Yeah, I think that's true. I think we need to make a few provisions here, too, because it's not like the findings of this deep dive into Moody map so well onto the contemporary situation. Like, you know, this, first of all, like there are tons of working class people who do subscribe to a, you know, a real strict type of fundamentalism or evangelicalism. Um, but like, it's important to note that like there's a lot of racial politics tied up in that, too. Like a lot of yeah, white yeah. evangelicalism, right? that's that's kind of what we're talking about here um so there's that um but i think you're right still that like this is a place where christians on the left can intervene into the larger christian discourse and to i mean you know to the extent that people are willing to listen to you talk about socialism and jesus which is you know unlikely <laughs> but <laughs> but yeah i think it's it's worth kind of thinking through like how do we do that um you know, like there are, I, I think so much of like my own family, I guess. I'm Dean, I'm sure you're, you're in the same boat too, right? But like, you know, my family is extremely evangelical. It's also, you know, pretty working class for the most part. I mean, whatever. Um, but it would be, it would be a hard thing to convince them, I think, of this point. <laughs> but it's, it's still like super necessary thing to do. Um, mm -hmm. Drawing out that like, I don't know, you're a working class person, like, don't listen to these people who are telling you to change your life and like, you know, do this certain type of Christian work. I think that's such garbage, but it's an important conversation to have. But it's hard. Yeah, it is hard. <laughs> it's hard because uh, the one thing that Moody is right about is that if you say that all you're going to do is like be a good person and get a job and all that kind of stuff, your life might not change automatically, but like people will be nicer to you. 
<laughs> That's true. Yeah, if you um, if you are mean about your boss and you're outraged about how little they're paying you, people will not be nice to you. That is one thing I've learned right. a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's just helpful too to recognize that. Uh, all right, like Mayday is a real rupture in history. I think uh, I, I want to say yeah. Well, Eric Hobsbawm, um, who's a Marxist historian. Uh, he said once that May Day is the um, the only time that like a secular event has made its way into like the calendar in a significant way, hmm. um, and you know that's like probably true. I think. I mean, you know, there are other other holidays too, like Fourth of July and all that kind of stuff. But like, there there's something unique about May Day as a kind of global like important event that's celebrated around the world. Um, and I think it's like important to recognize that there are Christian pieces of that story. You know, we've talked about the positives in the past. Like there were Christians who supported all that kind of stuff and Christians who were into the, the Haymarket martyrs. And, and there's even some faith backgrounds among the Haymarket uh, martyrs themselves. Um, but it's also important to recognize that like the May Day event is also a, a maybe not a rupture within Christianity, but a catalyzing moment for like conservative Christianity to take off. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, on May Day, if you're a Christian, you should celebrate the working class. You should find examples of Christians who are really into it and doing the good work. And you should also like take a minute and figure out how Christianity is still uh, wrapped up in all this ideological reproduction and figure out how to sabotage it from the inside. If that's where you find yourself. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Um, there's a ton of people going on strike this May Day, so uh, light a candle for them or pray for them or whatever, and uh, yeah, call their boss and tell them to eat a butt. <laughs> you can always do that, man. There, when strikes are going on, you can always call someone's boss and tell them to eat a butt. It's all, it's a, it's a tactic, and you can do it. And I just want to put that out there in the world. That's great. There you have it. Uh, that's the Magnificat strategy for this May Day. On this, on this May Day, holiest of days, tell someone's boss to eat a butt. Tell your own boss. I don't know. Um, <laughs> it's it's good though. I mean, support support workers, because if you don't, uh, the Christian right will just co-opt them, and that's not what you want. Yeah, it's not. It's the last thing you want. Yep. <laughs> well, this has been a real. I think. It's been a fun episode for me because I get to kind of drop a whole lot of weird things I know about um, the Moody Bible too <laughs> on our listeners. Um, but I think it's a good episode because it tells you some context you needed to know about labor and Christianity and evangelicalism. So there you go. There you have it. It's all here in front of you laid out before you. <laughs> That's perfect. Just like we've had some brutal transitions. This is a perfect brutal ending. I think It's just stopping now. The podcast is over. <laughs> It's over. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard, uh, especially that extremely brutal ending, uh, you can support us on patreon.com slash the Magnificast, where you can also find all kinds of other stuff. You can find uh, some episodes we've done about a TV show called Damnation. You can find some stuff about current events. Uh, it's all there, and it's all for you if you support us with your bucks. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at the Magnificast. You can send us an email at the Magnificast at gmail.com. And uh, you can join our Facebook group, The Magnificast Basement. 
Our music, as always, is by Amoria Armstrong, and our outro is by The Illogical Spoon. See you next week. Get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord.